Hello, everyone, and welcome to Novel. This is your host, Caleb Linville. Today, I'm extraordinarily excited to present episode five of When the Mountains Called by Shannon Baker. I think this episode is really something. Up until now, we've had a lot of imagery and allegory, and and pretty much everything in the story represents something beyond our initial impression of it. And this episode is no different. But I think what's special about this episode is the sheer depth and amount which is presented here. So I encourage all of our listeners to take a step back and take the time to really listen to this episode. Because this episode and the following episodes actually as well, I think they take the imagery and the allegory in a new direction, which is quite interesting. All right, here we go. Are you itching for a good story? Laughter among friends, maybe even a mystery or two? Well, you're in luck. Fire Breathing Kittens is a standalone Dungeons & Dragons podcast. Each episode is a separate three-hour-long story, like a movie for your ears, so you can listen to these adventures in any order you like. So, join us on a real-play D&D quest as we solve mysteries, attempt comedic banter, and enjoy friendship. Fire Breathing Kittens podcast. Fantasy, action, mystery, friendship. Novel is always looking for new, exciting, and thought-provoking stories to present on our podcast. If you have a story or a story idea that you would like to share with us for consideration for future seasons, please contact Novel at clinville at novelpodcast.net. That's C-L-I-N-V-I-L-L-E at novelpodcast.net or you can visit our website novelpodcast.net for more information the river was safe and so are the mountains do not be afraid the river carried you here closer to them closer to what you seek you will find it there in the mountains do you believe that you have to be patient like the mountains are patient They have been patient with you, don't you see? Gently they called, earnestly they called, but still they had to be patient, because you would not come, not at first. You doubted them, but they didn't doubt you, and so they kept calling. These mountains in particular have been here a long, long while. They are used to waiting, to watching their own rocks fall far from them after eons of hanging on. The mountains let them fall, because it is not fruitful to hang on to something that has passed its time. But they wait because new rocks form, chiseled by the faithful rain and steadfast wind, forming new ridges and new crevices in their sides, creating landscapes slightly altered from the first landscapes the mountains boasted, even as, at the heart, the mountains remain the same. At their core, they are the same mountain after all. They know this, and so they let the rocks fall, never complaining, never wanting, never wishing for something different. Instead, simply standing, steadfast as the rain and wind that beat them to bless them, everything in its time. You are not a mountain, but you have been called by the mountains, and the mountains call only what is their own. Remember that when you feel discouraged. Remember that when the rains and winds come, because still they will come, even as you have been called. Remember that the call of the mountains, when you slip in your search, and when you stumble in your ascent. On and on they call, 
and onward you must go, looking to the ones who whispered your name, because in them you have your treasure. It is there waiting for you, if you'll continue to seek. Do you believe that? The light streaming in through the captain's door reached him where he slept in the bed-sized nook, and his eyes opened. Sleep slipped away like dew melting before the early morning sun, and soon he was able to rise, pleased to notice that his joints did not ache as they had ached the night before. Mac was nowhere to be seen. The kitchen, dappled in sun rays, looked equal parts clean and homespun, as if the iron stove's rusting surface had been covered by a thin layer of polyurethane, smooth and clean to the touch but preserving evidence of rust and dirt. Good, good use beneath. On the burner sat the tea kettle, still steaming. Mac must have boiled water for morning tea. Andrew helped himself to a cup and moved to sit at the little table when the front door opened. Ready? Mac's face was beaming, and his dark eyes shone, reflecting the morning energy that streamed into the kitchen in such a way that Andrew wasn't sure if Mac himself had been causing it. Andrew nodded not really sure what ready meant, but the dream from the previous night had encouraged him. Today he was one step closer to finding Pearl. That's what the dream had said at least this morning. Basking in the steadily warming heat coming from the sun in Mac's eyes, Andrew chose to believe it. They left Mac's cabin, which from the outside had the appearance of a log cabin, except instead of individual logs stacked one on top of another, it seemed to be instead created by branches and twigs extending from the trees that surrounded it, like it had been swallowed by the woods itself, or, more accurately, was just now emerging from them, birthed from somewhere within. Andrew shook his head and followed Mac, who set off whistling. The trail had vanished. It was behind them, sneaking back into the woods the way they had come the previous night, and now before them lay thinning trees clustered together, growing out of slanted ground which marked the base of the mountains. They clambered over thick roots, though they were nothing like the woods through which Andrew had bushwhacked the night before. The morning sun glinted through gaps in the mossy trunks, and Andrew kept his neck tucked towards the ground so as to shield his eyes and let the low-hanging leaves just barely graze his head. He glanced up every now and then, his line of sight moving from the heels of Mac's muddied boots to the back of his black, wide-brimmed hat and red-checkered collar. Every time he did, Andrew had to squint. The sun was gradually rising to a place where its rays couldn't pierce the tree canopies. And somehow, every time Andrew's eyes rose to the back of Mac's head, it was as if the latter's body were a greenhouse, his head the beacon at the top, for the way the sun glinted off it was bright and unyielding. An hour passed, and still they walked briskly, ever uphill, creating switchback after switchback, passing two small water runoffs, and at one point, thirty yards to the left, a thundering waterfall. Waterfall so heavy and pounding that Andrew was sure he could feel its spray a hundred feet away. Taking only a moment to stare, Andrew plodded faithfully on. His breath came in little huffs, but Mac only continued whistling his notes clear and loud before they seemed to blend into the sunlight that continually surrounded his head and disappear.
Where, panted Andrew, did the path go? Don't other people climb these mountains? Max stopped suddenly, the crescendo of his whistling song halting with him. He turned, wide smile stretching across his cheeks, and Andrew shielded his eyes. Sure they do, Tosito, but only that when they've got a reason to. Most people adventure for a while, and then they stop, you know? Find a place to stay, or move on. Andrew frowned. Move on? Mac took out a heavy blue water bottle and took several gulps before smacking his lips and replacing the lid on top. Yes, sir. Everyone moves on eventually, whether it's here or there. They search a while, he gestured towards Andrew, or rest a while, or dream a while, or climb, or swim, or yell, or write, or build, and then they figured they'd better stop that and move on, or keep doing that and move on. Andrew frowned. He didn't know what Mac meant by move on, since apparently it meant both stopping and keeping on, staying and going, which was ridiculous. It had to be one or the other. He said so. Mac laughed, and the ha-ha-has echoed through the trees. The sunlight danced against the trunks. Everyone moves on to Sito. It looks different for different people, but everyone moves on. Pearl's blue eyes swam into Andrew's mind, and he shook his head, making them dissolve in ripples. He frowned again. Did you, he asked Mac, move on? Mac had started walking again, and Andrew lurched into a jog to catch up. Apparently, Mac had still heard him, because he chuckled in reply. Yes, sir. I think so. Then why are you still here? Mac made a small noise, something between a laugh and an amused grunt. His arms swung wildly as he walked, picking up the pace, and Andrew, having made the mistake of looking wholly at the back of Mac's head, was blinded and nearly tripped over one of the larger tree roots. Mac turned his head and yet did not slow down, instead seamlessly stepping over and around a cluster of upright and fallen pines in their direct path. Andrew climbed over the logs, craning his neck to hear what Mac was saying. Where do you think we are? Tosito? Andrew's mind prickled, the question he had avoided thinking about since circling the invisible fence that surrounded his field back home. He shrugged, then realized Mac had faced forward again. I don't know, he muttered. Death, I suppose. Mac laughed. Well, I'll be, he said. Dead. Really. Well, shoot, death is pretty, isn't it? He took a deep breath. The pine branches around him seemed to lean closer, their sweet, sharp fragrance making Andrew's nose twitch. Well, said Andrew, surprised by Mac's reaction, aren't we dead? Mac stopped again and turned around. He scratched the whiskers on his chin and stared back past Andrew. Back past the way they'd come. What makes you say that? he asked. What made him say that? Andrew thought back to the invisible fence, to the gently pulling river, to the darkened forest he'd traveled through, nor seen from a distance. He thought about all that when, standing in the fields, the mountains had first called. Come, they'd said. Come and the yellow grasses had rustled and his corduroy pants had itched. He thought about the man that stood in front of him now, whose bright, grinning face might have been two hundred years old or forty, whose dirt-streaked boots and fatal flannel and work pants combination, and for that matter, his kitchen, looked equal parts lived in and new. But for all of that, Andrew found himself thinking he was dead. He had to be not because of the river, or the fields, or the woods, or Mac and his rustic, clean kitchen, but because if he was not, then he would not be here, looking for Pearl. The mountains would not have told him to come, and he would not have, 
not willingly unless he was already dead. Only then did he have a chance to find his wife. If he was not dead, then what was he doing here? Mac nodded at all of this, his eyes the color of the trees around them, glinting with the same light and shadows. He took another drink from his water bottle before offering some to Andrew, who, realizing his thirst, took a sip. Tacito, said Mac, his voice quiet. You believe you are dead because you want to be, and because you are not at home in your cabin surrounded by your fields. You believe you are dead because this is different, because this is unknown. Andrew said nothing. Mac moved closer and put a calloused hand on Andrew's shoulder. His hand was warmer than Andrew expected, and he flinched. Mac didn't seem to notice, but stared at him with mossy eyes that blended into the surrounding trees themselves. But Tacito, said Mac, his voice low, his stare unwavering. I ask you this. Back in your little house, in your yellow fields and turnip gardens, and beneath the shade of the apple tree, tell me, were you alive? Around mid-afternoon, the men made it to the saddle between two adjacent mountains. Andrew wasn't really sure how far or how high they had hiked until there was a break in the tree line. Above them, the trees continued in smaller, shorter clumps, but the dense, twisting roots and the thickest of trunks were now behind them. Andrew didn't think he would have made it this high this fast if it hadn't been for Mac. Mac moved like the light moved. Andrew couldn't always pinpoint where each step pressed the dirt, but there were always footprints. Mac's boots seemed to blend into the slanting shadows made by the trees. One moment his foot was pushing off the dirt, and the next he was a few yards ahead, the same leg propelling him from behind a fallen tree trunk. Distracted by Mac's movement, Andrew had lost track of time. He hadn't even noticed his own panting breaths and aching calf muscles. But the mystery of Mac's travel had worked to Andrew's benefit, though by stopping he finally realized his exhaustion. They had made it to the gap between two of the mountains. There, in the break of the woods, Andrew could see the continuation of the peak they were headed towards, gray and jagged at the summit hundreds of yards above them. Across the saddle, another mountain stood, taller than the one they were on, but softer somehow, less abrupt in its ascent. Beyond them, on the other side of the mountain range, more peaks rose, reds and purples and deep gray rock all rising together, solid and unyielding. Those two were dotted black and green with forests, though these were not as dense as the ones from which the two men had come. Andrew wondered what was beyond these peaks, but their summits were shrouded in swirling light fog, and he could not see behind them. His heart sank. The mountain ridge they were on was vast enough. The range of mountains beyond it seemed even more unending. Pearl was in the mountains, waiting for him, and he had no way of knowing which one she might be on. His heart still pounded in his chest, half from tiredness from the recent climb, and half from discouragement, looking at the sheer magnitude and number of the silent, impassive mountains beyond. He couldn't help but wonder if his search was ultimately futile. No, stop, stop. He'd barely begun looking for his wife. It wouldn't profit to give up before he'd even truly started. His gaze slid down the side of the mountain they stood between and rested on the expansive valley below. Nestled between this mountain range and the one beyond, about 500 yards beneath the two men, 
The valley consisted of deep green grass dotted with blue, yellow, and pink alpine flowers. A river, glacial blue and rushing, sparkled from the pinpoint at the base of the far mountains, directly under the soon-to-set sun. The horizon was bathed in golden hour, casting a bronze glow across the currents of the water, which tumbled over itself from over the horizon in a rush to break against the tree line below them. Though they were above it now, Andrew realized, the valley had been above them for the majority of their day's hike, hidden from sight, still existing, but to them as nothing. If she had ever climbed this mountain when alive, and he still wasn't convinced this wasn't death, Andrew was sure that Pearl had never mentioned this valley before. How could something so grand, so beautiful exist without being seen? It was almost unfair. Watching him, Max spoke suddenly. That's the valley girl, he said, pointing a long finger towards the trees below with a saddle where they stood. Andrew stared. So focused was he on the beauty of the valley that he hadn't even noticed the spectacle directly beneath them. Not 100 yards away, with the slope of the ridgeline, it was indeed, as Mac had indicated, a girl. She was crouched on the rock, black as obsidian that was lodged in the middle of the river just before it spilled into the trees. Andrew realized that this must be the same river that coursed near the path Mac had trailblazed, and the source of the 30-foot waterfall he had marveled at hours before. She's a good girl, Mac said. Andrew glanced over. While he had to shield his own eyes from against the sun breaking against the horizon, Mac's hands remained at his side. His eyes burned golden, their own small fires. The way he had said it wasn't as Andrew remembered people saying it about dogs, a doting fondness, she's a good girl, but rather with some respect, like this small girl crouched on a rock was greater than himself. The valley girl, Andrew ventured. Unexpectedly, Max snorted. It ain't like it sounds these days, you know. Like one of those valley girls with vocabulary 50% likes and 30% lols or MOGs or talk to you laters or XOXO or whatever they say these days. He looked over at Andrew and sighed. They've butchered her reputation, you know. She deserves more than that. The valley girl's been stomping the great river from flooding the first mountains since before anyone here can remember. Andrew squinted over the ridgeline. He was old. He was sure the girl below, with her long blonde hair and fair skin, couldn't have been more than fifteen. He shook his head. Mac himself could have been any age, and though he didn't know much, Andrew now knew enough about this world he found himself in, that he figured he better not question it. But Mac had said something about the river and the mountains. The great river? The first mountains? Still holding a hand against the sun, Andrew craned his neck towards the fog swirling across the peaks of the mountains in the distance. So. Those are the second mountains? Mac frowned. The third mountains. Andrew stared at him, but where are the second mountains? He hoped against hope that there was not a whole other mountain range to explore. The sound of Mac's belly laugh echoed across the saddle. Silly to Sito, he said between chortles. There are no second mountains. An indignant sound escaped from Andrew's lips, but, but Mac was already waving him off. The third mountains were the original mountain range, here long before even the great river and the valley and perhaps even the sun itself. Few folks here know the names and personalities of the characters that inhabit them, or even the identities of the mountains themselves. Know the mountains' identities, Andrew repeated? But the first mountains came second. Much, much later, Mac continued, ignoring Andrew's confusion. After the great river, and after the valley. 
They're shaped by the Great River, of course, but it's all thanks to that valley down there. He pointed towards the girl below them, whose head was bowed and almost touching the rock on which she knelt. Most valleys are quiet, unassuming, Mac said, staring down at the girl. He looked at Mac, then grinned, flashing white teeth. Sometimes they're a little shy, especially if the mountains around them are particularly loud. They take all the spotlight, I guess. Andrew's head was spinning, but Mac didn't notice. The valley girl, though, she's special. She bears the brunt of the work, holding back the great river. Imagine the woods below, and all of us who live there, people and towns and me and my hut, if she didn't stay put in that river. He shook his head, still smiling, the fire back in his eyes, a sort of reverence. Andrew closed his mouth, just realizing it had fallen open, holding back the... But he trailed off, peering down into the valley, into that moment realizing what he was seeing. A young girl, yes, blonde and fair, in the middle of the icy, swirling currents. But she wasn't crouching on a rock. She was the rock. Though he had first thought her legs were bent beneath her, hidden under her torso against a smooth black surface, Andrew saw that her torso blended evenly with not a rock, but a thick black skirt, which was thigh-deep in glacial river that flowed around her. And it did flow around her. But the longer Andrew watched, the more he could see the great river swirling behind her, pushing back at her in waves where she stood firm-footed before it eddied around her and coursed past, but this time more controlled. The valley girl was stopping what would have surely been a destructive force from crashing over the side of the mountain to flood the world below. The river is ice, said Mac quietly, his eyes wide, still staring out across the ridgeline. It came long before the people here, so it doesn't cater them. It is ice, smooth and serene, not heartless, but not compassionate. It didn't know the people, so it was not born to love them. Andrew was silent, watching the valley girl below. Her blonde hair hung around her face, almost touching the river. Right in front of her, directly below her face, the water was still, being most shielded by the curve of the skirts. There, despite the distance, the water was so clear that Andrew could see the valley girl gazed at her own reflection. It seems painful, he said quietly to nobody in particular, like Atlas holding up the sky to save the world. Mac grunted. This ain't like that mythological nonsense, he said, his voice still, uncharacteristically low. But you're right, Tosito. It's hard to be in proximity to something as cold as the Great River. Valleys are warm, quiet, welcoming. They're selfless, and they love people. They let folks make their homes with them, and they let children play in their green fields, and they let the mountains retain the glory. This here, he gestured beneath them, is gentleness submerged in something that existed before community, before warmth. It's foreign, and she takes it in, because if she did it, there'd be no balance. No first mountains, no woods, no anything else. The great river would rush on because it is power and unseeing. It would surge on because that is what it is. And though it has no motive to, it would destroy us all. Andrew said nothing. Everything must be balanced, Tosito. The most powerful things, if contained, can be beautiful. You saw the woods, the waterfall. He gestured back the way they'd come, but left unchecked. He made a tsk sound and returned to the valley. Mac raised one hand, which looked darker than usual in the setting sun. Below them, the valley girl raised her head. She gave Mac a small smile, the softest of nods, and then Andrew watched as her gaze turned and fell on him. There was so much space between himself on the saddle and the fields and rivers below. 
but when the girl looked at him, the whole valley seemed to rise up towards him until he felt that if he were to fall into it, it would catch him. In all of this, the valley girl's gaze held him, and looking at her tender smile, punctured by pain and resilience alike, Andrew heard a voice, mild and sweet, rise up to his ears on a breeze infused with the fragrance of alpine blossoms. Your grief is powerful, Andrew, and it consumes you, but there is good in it. There can be good in it, in a course directed. Where am I in you, Andrew? Where am I? Thank you for listening to Novel. I hope you enjoyed this segment of our story. Please consider liking, subscribing, and reviewing the show to help the show grow, and also so that you don't miss out on the newest episodes. Thanks. This episode was read by Jonathan Keener. Written by Shannon Baker. With hosting, production, and original music by Caleb Linville.